Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. inviting you to turn to John chapter 6, and uh, one verse will kind of be the highlight, but I'm going to kind of hopefully this morning kind of run a thread through John's gospel and Matthew's gospel to highlight something that Jesus said about himself in John chapter 6, verse 35. And so I invite you to turn there. But I have this question, kind of something I want to begin with. And the question is this, what are you feeding on? What are you feeding on? Um, in, in my house, there are a couple of my girls that are like me. We're foodies, um, which, which means we just, we love food. Uh, we think that eating is an experience. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? It just is. And depending on what's on the menu, I can get really, really fired up about it. Uh, there's more to food than just the food. It's, it's an experience of things, but it gets that question, like, what are you actually feeding on? And obviously, your body needs food. You feed it like multiple times a day, or at least I'm guessing that you do on a normal day. But your soul also needs food as well, and you need to be feeding it. We have this question, as, as, as how do you sustain yourself? And people do that in different ways. Uh, for example, some people actually eat a balanced diet. You know, there's something, there's the, you got to have your proteins and so forth. But have you ever noticed that some people, maybe a little bit too much sugar intake is all I'm saying. Maybe they don't have a balanced diet. And I'm not naming names and don't look at anybody right now. We're not ratting people out. But I'll admit, when I was growing up, uh, I was a bread guy. That was one of those things. And I was thinking about my grandmother. Last time I went home, uh, before we were leaving, this was at, actually at Thanksgiving, uh, when we were leaving, my, my, my mom and dad came up and they gave me this, this big old pan and it's really thin and it has just been beaten absolutely to pieces. And it was my grandmother's pan that she actually used to work and make dough for bread. And just so you know, kind of like with eating, eating is an experience. Eating my grandma's bread, that was an experience. Uh, because she would, she would actually call over and say, hey, I'm making homemade bread. You guys come over for dinner. You didn't have to ask me. I was going. And so what did we eat for dinner? And the answer was, I ate bread. <laughs> and then what did you eat for dessert? And I'm not gonna lie, I actually ate more bread. It's just I put butter and jelly on it. It was just a little bit different. That was dessert. I was a bread-loving guy. So it got me thinking, well, what are some of the eating habits of Americans? And gang, we could do a little bit better, it seems. Americans consume 31% more packaged food than fresh food. 31% more. Over 10 billion donuts are consumed in the United States every year. 5,000 will be consumed by the students in this church this morning. I'm just kidding. I, I totally made that up. 20% of all Americans' meals are eaten, wait for it, in the car. 20%. All right, now, I almost thought about making you raise your hand if that's you, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. How about this one? Americans spend 10% of their disposable income on, wait for it, fast food every year. Okay, so I was just kind of reading through that, and I was like, well, <laughs> we could probably do better, is all I'm saying. Now, if that's you, just soak it up, absorb it for what it is. You don't have to rat yourself out. But I want to make an observation from Scripture to kind of tie all of that in. When God wanted to reveal himself to the masses for the, earth, the first time in Scripture, he did so by giving them manna, which literally means bread from heaven. And he did it every day. He did it six days a week, and then they collected so that on the Sabbath they could rest, but they had enough food for themselves. He gave them manna. And the reason that he did it is in his provision for them, they would know what God is like literally through their experience, but they would know what God is like. 
Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem in Hebrew means the house of bread. Fast forward, when Jesus was in the wilderness and he was being tempted in the wilderness, the deceiver, or what's called the deceiver that was in front of him, tempted him with bread. Why don't, why, don't you, why don't you turn these stones into bread? You remember that? He tempted him with bread. Before his crucifixion, Jesus had a powerful moment with his disciples in the upper room as he gathers them together and he knows that night was gonna be a brutal night. He was going to be handed over. He was gonna be tried unjustly. He was going to be tortured. But with the guys in the upper room, he took what? Bread. And he broke the bread. And as he broke the bread, he said, this, this is my body. I'm doing, what I'm about to do, I'm doing this for you. This picture of bread. See, last week we started this series on the famous I am statements of, G, of, of Jesus in the New Testament. And it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 when Moses has this encounter with God. And, and he was asking, kind of a, a big thing to ask him, I want you to take my people and get them out of Egypt. And Moses is like, well, what kind of credibility am I going to have with these people? And he says, well, I'm with you. He goes, well, how would they know that I'm with you? Like, what do I tell them? And the answer was, you tell them I am sent you. Jesus, when you go over into the New Testament, he picks up on this theme going all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, and he connects it with specific things about himself. Yes, when he said it, he was identifying as, I'm God standing in front of you, but then he made very specific statements to them on what that actually meant, like, I'm the good shepherd, or I'm the way, or I'm the resurrection and the life, or what we're going to be looking at today, he said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. What do you even mean when he said that? And before I get to that, I want to show you something about kind of this arc of the narrative in the Gospels that's pretty awesome. Before Jesus said this, before he ever said, I'm the bread of life, he, per he performed what was perhaps his most famous miracle, which was the feeding of the 5,000. And every time you see a miracle in Scripture, one of the things that's connected to it is this was meant to be a sign to you. Now, just so you know, baseball season isn't that far off. Y'all ready for that? All right, Astros fans. We know a little bit of something about reading signs, don't we? <laughs> we're good at it. You know, the catch is, is we're just better at it than the other teams. I'm just saying. So these, these miracles are performed so that it would demonstrate something. You can see something. It's a sign of something. And then we read this in John chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 says the Jewish Passover festival was near. And when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming to him, he said to Philip, where, where do we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip, what do you think we ought to do here? There's a big old crowd. Ministry's been happening. The people are getting hungry. Where are we going to get the food? And Philip's like, hmm. You ever have that moment with God? Just kind of like, hmm. But Jesus already knows what's going to be going down. So he asks the question, but he does it so that he can set up a sign for people. A miracle that intentionally reveals something about God. And that's what a miracle is. It's a sign that points to a person. It points to God. And in this case, there's going to be a provider. I'm going to provide something for you. Now that obviously jumps back to this image in the Old Testament where God is your provider. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, literally means the Lord will provide. Or another way of translating Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will see to it. I'll see to it. 
Have you ever heard somebody say something like that to you before? Hey, we've got this issue coming up. I'll see to that. And depending on how well you know them, when they say that to you, you know the job is gonna get done. Do you know what I'm talking about? If they say that they'll see to it, they'll see to it. And that's what God was saying when he revealed that about himself. I'm the provider, I'm gonna see to it that it gets done. Let me give you a little bit of an excursus here. So when God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, he gave them manna. But later he also gives them a meal to celebrate the deliverance and Passover. I want you to kind of pump your brakes, is what he told them. And I want you to stop. And I want you to remember my provision for you. He wasn't just a provider, he was a deliverer. He was like, I don't want you to forget. And at this point in John's gospel, what we just read here, the people are under a different oppressor. It wasn't, it wasn't the Egyptians anymore, it was the Romans. And they were looking for a deliverer. And one of the signs that they were looking for, when you read John chapter six, it says this, manna will fall from heaven again. That language means something to these people. It fell from heaven before and God provided and God delivered and we're looking for a deliverer. This place is a mess and God is going to provide and he's going to deliver. Manna is gonna fall from heaven again. And there's a textual hint in here of something that's important. Did you notice this in John chapter six, verse four? It says the Jewish Passover festival was near. Now he's talking to a Jewish crowd. So it's kind of like, hey, you might want to listen to what I'm about to say because jumping all the way back to Exodus chapter 12, Jesus standing right in front of them. You have this picture of like God in their past saying, I want you to stop and there's this meal and you're going to have this unleavened bread so that you can remember that I deliver you. Jesus is pulling all of this right up in front of their face. This is something I'm going to do for you. And so look at John chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. It said, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and they filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Well, that's kind of interesting because here you have Jesus coming up, probably his most famous miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. This is kind of a Jewish crowd that's up in front of him. And did you notice something that was here? It says there were leftovers. Did you notice how many leftovers there were? And the answer is, there were 12 baskets of leftovers. Well, how many tribes of Israel were there? And the answer is, 12 tribes. This was, this was meant to show something, like physically in front of the people that were there that experienced the miracle. The miracle is a sign of something. It's like there are 12 baskets left over. You were wondering how we were going to feed the crowds. We got 12 baskets left over. There are 12 of your tribes. I've provided for you. I've provided for you. And then no, notice this in John chapter 6, verse 14. It says, and after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. It's like we were looking for him, manna to fall again. This might actually be the guy. You think they might kind of be starting to get it a little bit, right? Looks good. Uh, but they missed it. They missed it. You know, it got me wondering, how, how do we miss something that is right in front of our face? Have you ever done that? Literally right in front of your face and you missed it. There was a test that was done. This goes back some years ago. It's called the gorilla test. Have you, any of you heard of it? Well, here's what they did. So the gorilla test goes like this. They had three people that were dressed in white shirts. They had three people that were dressed in black shirts and they gave them basketballs. 
And then they had a group of observers and what they told the observers they wanted them to do as the, the group was walking around, they were mixing with each other. You understand what I'm saying? White shirts and black shirts were mis- mixing with each other. And then they had basketballs and they were like, we want you to count the number of times the people in the white shirts dribble or pass the basketball. Are y'all tracking me so far? All right. While they were doing that, and you see the black shirts and the white shirts going like that, and you see the ball being passed and whatnot. Out from the side walks this person in a gorilla outfit and walks literally in between them, stops, bangs his chest like this, and then he walks off to the side. And then the experiment comes to an end. And then they ask the people, well, how, how, many, how many like passes, or sometimes they said dribbles, uh, how many did you count from the people in the white shirts? And they'd, they'd give a number, right? 26, 28, or whatever the number was, right? How many of you noticed the gorilla that walked through? And they're like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Well, here's the thing. People actually kind of caught on to it. You do it a number of times if you're like, I know what you're doing here, right? You're looking for the gorilla to come out. So they had to tweak the test just a little bit. So instead of a gorilla walking out, you had the white shirts and the black shirts kind of walking around each other like that. And it's count the dribbles or count the passes, whatever, whatever they're asking them to do. But the only change in, in this case was the, the color behind them actually started to change on the curtain. Well, how many of you noticed that the curtain went from this color to this color? And like everybody's like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Why? Is because they were focusing on what they were directed to focus on. What they were told to focus on was the things that they were seeing. There's actually a current example of this and it goes back to 1995 in which police, they were in hot pursuit. And I love those words because it takes me back to the Dukes of Hazard. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Hot pursuit. So they were in hot pursuit of four suspects that were driving away from the scene of a shooting. And after, after cornering the suspects, the first police officer on the scene was a guy named Michael Cox. Except the thing was, is he was actually in street clothes. So he hears of this and he just beelines to it. Uh, and he chases one of the guys on foot. Other officers arriving on the scene mistakenly thought co- uh, that he, Michael Cox, was a suspect. And they beat him unconscious. So literally, you've got these cops running by. And one guy comes up, and the way he described it was, was like, I got hit in the back of the head by what I think was, was like a bar. And I'm on the ground, and he said, and I'll look up, and I see what I think is a cop. And then I'm just getting pummeled again. And one of the other cops literally just blasts right by him in hot pursuit of the other people. Well, obviously that, that brought up some concerns. It's like, well, why are you beating this guy the way that you were beating him? And it brought up these questions, but basically this is, this is what was said. Uh, there was another officer named Kenny Conley. He had, he had taken up pursuit and he runs right past the altercation. And this is what Conley said. He said he didn't see Cox or the assailants. He was, and by the way, he was convicted of perjury and obstruction of justice. But he said, I didn't see anything and see it. So this is what raised a really interesting legal issue. Are y'all hanging with me so far? Because I promise I'll tie this in. This was the question. Could an eyewitness actually fail to notice an assault like that one? And so they got a psychology professor to come in and put his alibi to the test. Let me give you the results. Here's kind of what they said. Well, we can't simulate a high-speed chase. That would be difficult. What they said is, is we want to extract the most critical element, which was Conley's focus on pursuing a suspect. 
which is why he didn't see the beatdown that was happening over here. And this is what they found in their experiment. They said, we asked participants, a little bit of a shift in the test, we asked participants to jog behind an assistant and to count the number of times he touched his hat as they were jogging behind the assistant. And as they jogged, here's what they found. They ran past a staged fight. This one was fake, by the way. They, they ran past a staged fight in which two men looked like they were beating up a third one. Never trust a psychology department is all I'm saying, right? End of sermon, just kidding. Here's what they found. In broad daylight, over 40% totally missed the fight when they went by it. 65% when it was dark, 65%. And they walked right by it, right there. The question is, is how do we miss what is right in front of us? Here's what they found. Uh, this, what they call inattentional blindness. It can give you great focus. Like you might actually know how many times a basketball got passed or dribbled. 28, good for you. But what'd you miss? What'd you miss? And you might respond with something like this. I was paying attention to what I was told to. Maybe. And you might have also missed what was most important. You see what I'm saying? We can do it. We can do it. So after, after the feeding of the 5,000, there are a couple of things that you see in the Gospels. Like, for example, right after this, Jesus walks on water. Not going to lie, that'd be awesome to watch. And everyone on the boat, you remember this? The storm, you know, comes up. Everybody on the boat's freaking out. And Jesus walks on water. They're losing their minds. And the question is, why were they losing their minds? And the answer is, because with the feeding of the 5,000, they saw the miracle, but they missed the sign. The, the person, they missed the person it was pointing to. Do you see what I'm saying? They missed the person that it was pointing to. He is your protection. He is your provider. And at the first sign, of any kind of wave, they were flipping out. It got me thinking. I think sometimes we love the idea of God providing until we find ourselves in situations where we have to ask him to provide or depend on him to provide. Is that fair? Just like them. But then the story goes on because you find in Matthew 15, verse 21 through 28, but the, I'm gonna give you the description of it. This, this Canaanite woman walks up to Jesus because her daughter is possessed by a demon. The disciples look at her and they're like, we want you to go away. But she looks at Jesus and she says, please help. And Jesus says to her this, he says, it would be right to take food for children and throw it to the dogs. And by the way, that, that, that was really a push. He wanted to see how much this woman was actually gonna stick with her request to him. And he does it by just dropping that line on her. And instead, what she does is she persists in the request and the trust in him to provide for her daughter. And Jesus says this to her, a Canaanite woman, by the way, your faith is great and your daughter is healed. Your faith is great. Now imagine, because all this happens after Jesus crosses the water. You feed the 5,000, you cross the water. You got all this going on. Now he's about to feed 4,000 people. The catch is, it's a totally different crowd of people. You have a Jewish crowd on one side, you got this crowd on the other side. This woman is who he runs into, and Matthew describes her as a Canaanite woman. Why does that matter? Is because as he's with the crowd, he's just been over the water, and now he's over here, and he does the exact same thing. The only thing that really changes is, seems like the number of people that were reported, they got snacks, right? They got bread. And notice what it, notice what it says. What was left over? Seven baskets. 
Seven baskets. Not 12, but seven. Why is that? Well, look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 2. It says, he'll drive out the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and the Termites. So I'm just kidding. If you paid attention to what I just read, how many were there? The answer is seven. There's seven. The seven, as he crosses over the lake and he feeds the 4,000, the seven are the nations that are mentioned in Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2 that are Canaanite nations. So on one side, he, he looks at a Jewish crowd. Twelve baskets are assigned to you that I'm here to provide for you and to take care of you. You need me. He crosses over the lake. You have a totally different crowd. Seven baskets are left over. This is assigned to you. Do you think God's trying to say something in this? You think so? This is for you. Notice the recap. He's fed the 5,000 manna, bread from heaven like Moses. He's miraculously walked on water. That's a water event. Moses had a water event, just for those of you that are trying to remember. Now he's feeding the 4,000. This is a Gentile crowd. What is he trying to say? I'm here for all of you. All of you need me. And then notice in John chapter 6, verse 22 to 25, when you look at it, the crowds are starting to look for him again, even boating across the water to find him. I, honestly, I'd probably do that again. I'd probably do it too. I mean, this is too much cool stuff to watch, if nothing else. And then when they get to them, notice John 6, 26. Here's what Jesus says. You want to be with me because I fed you, but not because you understood the miraculous sign. Ow. You want to be with me because I've become Bobby Flay for you. You want me to whoop up something good for you. But you're not here for me. You're not here for me. And this is their answer. John chapter 6, verse 30 to 35. So they asked him, well, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? Like, what will you do? I mean, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Moses did it, will you? Now that's kind of a twist, don't you think? Because after all, I sitting there going, well, what sign are you going to give? And Jesus is probably sitting there going, are you kidding me? What do you think I've been doing the whole time? You've been missing everything. And what would make you think if I gave you one more, you'd go, ooh, I see it now. Because you will not see what you don't want to see. By the way, before we beat up on them too much, you don't either. And neither do I. It's motivated reasoning. And this is the way it goes on. Because they said, verse 30, show us a miraculous sign and we'll believe you. <laughs> really? Okay. So Jesus says to them, verse 32, well, well, verily I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven. It's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. But you haven't believed in me, even though you've seen me. You keep asking for more, and you haven't even leaned into the good things I've already given you. Quit asking for more. Take what I've already given you. But this is another thing that he's saying to them. You're kind of getting on the right track. You want the, the problem is you want the miracle over and over, and I'm offering you something better. What good would the miracle be if your soul misses it? It's kind of interesting. You know, when, when I'm teaching, as a professor of philosophy, we look into miracles, and I would hear as I would engage with atheist friends, you know, if God just did this miracle in front of me, I would believe. And I'm like, God, you need to read the Bible. 
Are you kidding me? You, you have plenty of things that happen in front of you that you can completely miss. And this was their moment. They were completely missing it. And so when he says this, you know, well, you're missing everything. Notice verse 41, they began to murmur. They're so people, aren't they? They began to murmur. Verse 42, isn't his dad Joseph? I mean, how can he say that he came down from heaven? Now they're doing jabs, murmurs and jabbing at Jesus. Verse 49, your ancestors ate manna from heaven and they all died. Here you are saying, all you gotta do is eat manna and you're never gonna be hungry again. They all died. You see what they're doing? And then Jesus does this to him in verse 53 of John 6. Well, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have eternal life. You think that probably caught anybody's attention? You know what your solution is? Cannibalism. I'm just kidding, because that's not what he was saying. But it probably shocked him to hear it. Think about it like this. Two, two pictures in what Jesus said. Unless you eat my flesh, this image in John 6 has been bread that's provided that you eat, that sustains you. He's talking about taking him into yourself and he will sustain you, eat and drink. Because he goes on to say in John chapter six, it's the spirit that will give you life. It's the spirit that will give you life. This is what you need to eat and this is what you need to drink. And you would love to go, oh, that's the time. They finally got it, like they got it now. Well, no, they didn't. Because when you look at John chapter six, verse 66, notice what it says. Many of his disciples turned away and they deserted him. I hear what you just said but that's not for me. I was here for the snacks. Interesting. I wanna give you some insights here from this passage because there's a lot going on, isn't there? Think about manna. Where did it come from? It was bread from heaven. As the Jews had said to Jesus, they got that right. Jesus is a picture of the true bread from heaven. How often did the people eat of the manna in the time of the Exodus. They gathered it every day apart from Sabbath, but they fed on it every day. This is a reminder and a picture of how we need this every day. You need it every day. Was the manna accessible to them? Like I, I would have had a relationship with God, but it, God's inaccessible. Um, no, God was close. <laughs> I mean, how much closer can it get? He's right there. But in the time where he was providing manna, it literally lay in the dew around the camp for them. But they still had to go gather it. Still had to go pick it up. Still had to put it in your mouth. And if they didn't, in spite of his provision, the provision was there. If they didn't, they would go hungry and they, their bodies would grow weak. My friends, if you don't feed your soul, your soul will grow weak. You need it. It, it reminds me of something. Jesus is close to each of us but also we grow weak spiritually when we don't take him in, day by day. Was the manna a reminder or a foretaste of anything else? And the answer is, yeah. Notice what happened, the way that the scripture described it, it tasted like wafers made with honey. Now that sounds all right, doesn't it? Sounds good. The promised land was said to be a land, what? Flowing with milk and honey. It was pointing to something. Every experience of Jesus that we have, every time in his life that we taste and see that the Lord is good, like the way that the psalmist says it, is simply a small entree or appetizer to the full experience of the Lord that we have when we are with him. You get a taste. You get a taste. How many of you have tasted him this week? He's the bread of life. 
He will satisfy your soul. Don't miss him. Don't starve him out. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.